Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go to Matthew's Gospel in the first chapter. Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, it is that is found on page 807. Before I read the text, um, well, first, I, I want to say thanks to the um, Broadheads and the Evensons for decorating the auditorium and the church uh, for Christmas. Although I was looking down, I think we probably should move the pulpit because you really can't see it too much. So maybe we'll get it out of here for next week. But I will say this, that um, I really appreciate the, the work that they put into that and and getting it done. So grateful for people who use their giftedness. Um, if if I were to decorate, if I were to be in charge of decorating, um, it would not be a pretty sight. So I appreciate people who use their giftedness in this way. So thank you so much for that. Before I read the text this morning, you know, here's a question for you. We're going to do a little quiz here. But have you ever considered the ridiculousness of what some companies promise. You ever watch commercials and you see the promises that they make and you think, really? It's kind of ridiculous. Um, so I'm going to put a few quotes on the screen and you got to tell me what company you think is the one who said this. So the first one is to inspire moments of optimism and uplift. What company is that their brand promise? Any ideas? No ideas? Let's go and show them. Coca-Cola. Now, I like Coke, but when I drink a, a can of Coke, I don't, I don't like say, you know what? I'm feeling really optimistic about life right now. Or what about this one? You might guess this one. The ultimate driving machine. Ford, I'm here Ford, anything? BMW. BMW it is. All right, so those of you who said BMW, BMW Gold Star to you. All right, what about this one? To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Nike. There you go, okay. Some of you are getting the hang of this. Uh, whenever I put on a pair of Nikes, I am inspired and innovated. And I have innovation. I, I am just amazed when I put on those Nikes. And when I have to put on Reebok, it's like there's no inspiration at all. I don't even want to talk about Adidas. Um, this is another easy one for you here. To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person in one cup and one neighborhood at a time. Starbucks. Starbucks it is. Yes, I think every time someone pays $5 for a cup of coffee, they are inspired about the human spirit. In that moment. Now, some brand promises are a little bit more uh, 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 plausible. Here's the last one. You guys will get this one. 15 minutes or less can save you 15% or more on car insurance, and it is Geico. Very good. Okay. So these companies are promising all sorts of things to people who will pay money for their products. If you have this cup of coffee or you have these shoes or you have this type of car or whatever it is, that there's certain promises that are, are implicitly or very explicitly uh, associated with having or utilizing their product. There's, there's certain benefits there. But have you ever stopped to think about how much of our world is framed around the notion of a promise? 
much of how we live our lives, much of what we do with our lives is around promises. I mean, think about how many times you are required to make a promise in your life. It really, anything that requires a signature is a promise, or it's requiring a promise. Now, humans have an inherent belief in the sacredness of a promise. Now, if you don't believe that, promise your kids that you will stop at Culver's for custard on the way home from church, and then don't do it, okay? What is the first thing they're going to say? They're going to say, but mom, but dad, you... Right, okay? So humans have this inherent understanding that a promise is sacred and that you should not violate the promise. And humans require promises because of our inherent sin. You ever think about that? Because of the fact that we're sinful, we require promises. We know the depths of sinfulness in our hearts and in the hearts of other people, so promises are required. It's because we don't trust one another, because we know that people often don't do what they say they're going to do, or often people overcommit and underdeliver. And so we require promises. Now, that's our theme of this Advent season, the promises of Christmas. And the promises that God makes to us, I want you to think about it this way, are actually acts of intense understanding of our weakness. Psalm 103 says, He knows we are dust. The fact that God would make explicit or implicit promises to us shows that He says, I know you're weak and you require this. Because God's integrity is unquestionable. Yet, because He knows us, because He knows our doubtful hearts, He promises different things to us that we can hold on to. So we're going to be look, we will be looking over the next five weeks here at several promises that surround Christmas. And thankfully, each promise that is made is made by the one who always keeps his promise. So let's read the text. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's really two points today that I'd like to discuss with you, and that is this. What, there's really two questions. What do we know about the promise of Jesus' coming birth? And then what can we learn from the promise of Jesus' coming birth? So what do we know about it, and then what can we learn from it? So first of all, what do we know about the promise of Jesus' coming birth, particularly from this text? 
First of all, I find it very interesting to note that Jesus' birth involved every member of the Trinity. Did you see that in this text? And we can see it also in other places of Scripture. But first of all, we see very, very clearly that Joseph was told, not just once, but twice, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We see in verse 18, we see it also in verse 21, excuse me, verse 20. We see that the the Holy Spirit had a role in this whole notion of the coming birth of Jesus Christ, that it was the Holy Spirit who, who put that that put Jesus into the womb of Mary, Mary being the virgin. And so the virgin birth was, was protected here because the Holy Spirit is the one who did this. So Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we see in verse 23 is, is hinted, but we see it more explicitly in other places of Scripture, that, that this was orchestrated by the Father. So not only was it conceived by the Spirit, but it was orchestrated by the Father. You see that People would call the name, call Jesus Emmanuel, because it meant God with us. We also see in like Galatians chapter 4, I put it on the screen for you, it says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this whole thing was orchestrated by the Father. So we have the, the Spirit conceiving the child, and we have the Father showing that this is His plan, that this is His way for Him to dwell with man in a bodily form. And then we see that in Galatians, and we could go through a whole other, many other texts of Scripture, but very clearly in Galatians that this was God sending His Son. But then we see finally, and it was enacted by the Son. We see in verse 23, it says, They shall bear a son. Jesus is going to come. We see this also in Jesus' own words in John chapter 6, verse 38, when he said, For I, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Philippians chapter 2 would be another text for you to look at at another time about how the, the Son enacted this. And so the first thing to note in this, in this whole thing about this, this coming birth of Jesus, was that the whole Trinity was involved in this. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because there is always complete unity and harmony within the Godhead. And it should serve as an example of how we ought to interact with one another. There's always unity within the Godhead amongst the Trinity. Jesus and the Father were never at odds about the coming birth. There was never a time where the Father said, you know what, we need to do something about this mess. Jesus, why don't you do this? And Jesus says, I don't really want to do that. There was never a moment where Jesus says, I don't want to go to earth. There was never a moment where Jesus says, I don't want to become a man. There was never a moment when Jesus said, I don't want to have to live on earth among sinful human beings. I don't want to set aside some of my godly attributes, like Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus willingly did. There was never a moment where the Spirit of God had to convince Jesus to do this. There was never a moment where the Spirit of God had to go to Jesus and say, look, this is the only way it's going to work. There was never a moment where there was disunity and disharmony amongst the Trinity. In fact, from before the foundations of the earth, the Bible teaches, God, all three persons of the Godhead, was unified on this coming birth of Jesus. It was a master plan. That Jesus, motivated by love, motivated by obedience to the Father, 
said, I am willing to do this. To me, that's an incredible truth from this text about the coming birth of Jesus. Secondly, another observation of what do we know about this birth, I see that Jesus' birth fulfilled very specific prophecy. Much has been said about that in the Advent season, and much has been said about how Jesus coming to earth was prophesied ahead of time, and that people should have been waiting and watching and ready for the coming birth. And so particularly for those of you who have several years of experience in the church or, or, or whatnot or in Christianity, you understand that this was prophesied, but I hope we don't glaze over that. I hope we don't, we don't miss the significance of that. We see, it says that in verse 23, Behold, the virgin so conceived and bare a son. It says this was taken, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had said by the prophet. And so that prophet is Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And so the fact that he would be born of a virgin was fulfilled in this. It says that, uh, and we know what from, from this text and later on, uh, in chapter 2 and verse 1, it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. But we know that that was even prophesied in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. So the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, so first that he was born of a virgin, secondly that he was born in Bethlehem, even the city where he would be born was prophesied. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, talks about a coming ruler to be expected, and this was prophesied that he would come. But people should have been waiting for his, his arrival. There should have been universal anticipation and preparation. In fact, that's the reason why we call it Advent. In, in the Advent season, it means coming, or it comes from a Latin word for coming. And in, in mixed in with that term is the idea of anticipation and preparation. This is the reason why we do the tradition like the lighting of the Advent candle is because this was something that it, it helps us lead towards what these, these are the four Sundays leading up to typically Christmas Eve, and, but this time we'll light it on Christmas Day. But... Uh, but we have this idea of, of this anticipation. So as you look at the Advent candles, we see, okay, we're in the first Sunday of Advent, and then next week we'll do the next one, the third and fourth, and then finally the, the arrival of Jesus Christ is what we celebrate here. And so that's one of the reasons why we do this, because this idea, it's a visual representation and reminder to, to, to understand that Jesus was coming and there was an anticipation there. I don't want to get too, too far ahead of myself, but I will also say that we should also be expecting an advent of Jesus Christ, the second advent, right? There should be a preparation. There should be an anticipation for the coming of Jesus Christ again. Our whole lives should be framed around the promise that Jesus is coming back. And so this Advent season, when we celebrate the first advent, let us also be very cautious to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus has promised to come back again. And He is a coming ruler just like he was the coming ruler once in Bethlehem when he came, one day he will come back. And then at that point, the Bible is very clear to say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I long for that day. We live in a world where there's a lot of stiff knees and unwilling hearts and tongues to proclaim the glory that Jesus deserves. And we anticipate the way when He will get the glory that He deserves. So, but as we're anticipating that day, should we not be preparing our own hearts and giving Him glory even today? 
See, this Advent season reminds us of the coming ruler. That was a prophecy as well. But then he was the final prophecy that I'll mention, and there's others that we could mention about this first Advent, but I'll mention this last one, is that he was the seed of Eve that was prophesied to bruise the head of the serpent. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now what was happening there? Well, Adam and Eve had sinned. They had fallen in the garden. They had eaten of the forbidden fruit. The, the serpent, we know from later on in Scripture that it was the devil in the form of a serpent, had tempted Eve. And Adam, being right next to her, didn't do anything to stop it. And, and Eve ate of the fruit. Then Adam ate of the fruit. And so then God came and, and, and had to deal with this sin. And so he's having this conversation with Adam, with Eve, and with the serpent. And punishment is being handed out to Eve and to, to Adam. And then he directs his, his attention to the serpent there. And he talks about how that he's going to have to crawl on his belly and eat dust for the rest of his life. And all the seed of the serpent would have to do this as, as a result of the sin. But then he says this very curious thing here, this verse that I quoted here in Genesis 3.15. And theologians refer to this as like the first glimpse of the gospel. If you want a, a really fancy word for it, it's called proto-evangelium. So you can impress people at lunch with that word. Okay, But it's the first mention of the gospel here in Genesis 3.15. And where it says, it says that he looks at the serpent and he says, he says you're going to bruise the seed of this woman's heel, but he will bruise your head. Now, the word bruise there can be translated crushed. And if you're using an NIV translation of the scripture, you would see that first bruising that's translated crushed. And because of the location of the attack, and because of the location of the, the injury, we see that the heel is not a mortal wound, and, but the head is. And so what, Jesus, what, excuse me, what God was saying here is that Jesus would then be the seed of this woman who would have the bruise on the heel from the serpent. The serpent would strike and would bruise him. But in the process of that, the cross, his head would be crushed. And so in this first glimpse of the gospel, we have this idea that, that here Jesus was going to fulfill this promise that even amongst the punishment being handed out, God gave redemption, gave the plan of redemption and said, but your power will be crushed one day. And, and, that, and that his seed, that the people of Jesus will be saved from their sins because of this. So very specific prophecies were fulfilled in this. They have very important ramifications to us. Thirdly, Jesus' birth fulfilled not just specific prophecies, but specific purposes. Did you notice in verse 21, it says, you will call his name Jesus for, here's the reason why you will call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sin. This was a promise in his coming birth that when he was born, the name that would be given to him would have a specific purpose because of his life would have a specific purpose. Names are important. When we were choosing to name my daughter, our daughter, um, we chose the name Michaela. It's the feminine form of Michael. And Michael means who is like God. It's an expression of worship and admiration. 
And I've shared the story before, I won't repeat it now, but the way that the Lord granted Michaela to us, it just caused us to stop and say, only God could do this. And so every time we said the word Michaela, or when we call her Mia, I know it's short for Michaela, I want to be reminded who is like God. When the Lord brought Isaiah into our lives, Anouk and I literally were driving to the hospital the night he was born, trying to settle on a name. So we're driving down to Janesville. He was born down in Janesville. And we're driving down there. And so we had about 45-minute drive or so. And we're driving down there. And I said, you know, sweetie, we haven't fi- settled on a name yet. And she's like, I know. And we had done some research. And we had gone back and forth with some, some, some things. And I remembered in my research that I saw that the name Isaiah means God is generous. I said to Anuk, I said, you know, we prayed for years for a child, and God granted me a son. Never in our wildest dreams do we think that he would give us two children. God is showing his generosity to us here. Let us name our son Isaiah. God is generous. And that's what we did. And so there are often moments when I say, Isaiah, and I think God is generous. Now, if I say Isaiah Robert, I'm not thinking about his name meaning, okay? All right? (laughs) Names have significance. Names have great meaning to them. And Jesus' name had the purpose to remind us that he came to save his people from their sins. And so this Advent season, when we say the name Jesus, He came. He was born. His coming birth was for the purpose that you and I can be saved from our sins. It's an amazing thought. His birth has a very specific purpose. He came not only just to save His people from their sin, but we know from other places of Scripture that He came to make God known and acceptable. I didn't put these verses on the screen, but just listen to me. If you're writing notes, just write the reference down. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. It upholds the universe by the word of power. We're going to conclude our service by singing the first place. And it was this text of Scripture that prompted that song to be written because it shows us God, that Jesus, we see God who is invisible to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We know God. And then also we have access to Him. Another reference right down, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through Him, we, this is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the purpose, one of the purposes of the coming birth of Jesus when He came was so that we could have direct access. It was, it was no mistake or it was no coincidence that at the cross when Jesus gave up His Spirit and He died, that the, the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy holies from the top to the bottom was torn in two pieces because before that, that curtain, that veil would keep people out. Only certain people... One person, once a year, had the opportunity to go into that place and offer sacrifice where that symbolized the presence of God. 
And when Jesus died on the cross, that was torn open so there was complete access. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2 that now, because of the coming birth of Jesus, we have access to God. This was a purpose. We can know God through Jesus. He's the exact imprint. We can have access to Him. And then He also came to destroy the devil's power. We mentioned that already with Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, but also note 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. But very specifically, John says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Very clear. And so we see that there's very specific purposes. This is what we know about the coming birth, that this wasn't something that a plan was hatched just uh, ad hoc. This was before the foundations of the earth, before the world was created, before Adam and Eve even sinned. God had this plan in motion. We see when we read in Matthew chapter 1 all these things about the coming birth, that there was this plan in place. Now, that's what we know about it. And we could spend more time mining out awesome truths of other things that we could observe from the coming birth of Jesus. But let's move on to our second and final point this morning, and that is, what can we learn from this? What can we learn from the promise of Jesus' coming birth? Well, as I was pondering this, I was thinking through of God's promises and His fulfillment, and I I had this thought, I thought, and this is not going to be shocking to you, but God's promises often seem inconceivable or even impossible. Don't they? I mean, the things that God promises, don't they seem like sometimes, really? You think, well, now none of you, I didn't see them nodding your head, so you have greater faith than I, but... I, I, think, I think if we stopped and thought through some of the promises that Jesus himself said, there were moments in our times, where, there were moments in our lives and times where we think that they're inconceivable or even impossible. For instance, Jesus said, I will never leave you. Why do I feel alone then? If Jesus says, I will never leave you, why do I battle intense anxiety and loneliness at times? Jesus says, I will give you rest. Why do I feel so tired and weary? And not just the tiredness of, I need more sleep, the weariness of life. He says, I will give you rest. Why do I feel so weary? He says, I will provide. So why do my kids not have what I think they should have? Maybe that's what you're thinking. Jesus also said, He will establish His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why does the church seem to be losing the battle in this world? God's promises inconceivable or even impossible to us. He says, if you ask in my name, I will give it to you. 
so why don't I have what I want? Like a win against Ohio State. He also says, finally, as a final example, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. So why do I feel like he's not with us? You see, I think sometimes when we look at these promises in Scripture and all these things, sometimes we have to admit to ourselves that we often feel like they're not true. Or they're maybe applicable to other people, but not us. We see examples of other people having those promises answered to us, but yet for us they seem inconceivable or even impossible. And we wonder why. I mean, because we want to be a good Christian, we dare not ask that question. Because we don't want to be accused of having little faith in God, we hold that to ourselves. You know, as I was thinking through this promise of Jesus' coming birth, I thought, what can we learn from this? And is that often the promises of Jesus, the promises of God, seem inconceivable or impossible to us. The promise of Jesus coming here, born of a virgin. Can you get more inconceivable or impossible than that? And so the promises that God often gives to us seem inconceivable or impossible to us. I also thought that God's fulfillment, secondly, of His promises, often the fulfillment of His promises are often or is often much different than what we would have imagined or planned. We have the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. We have the promise of all these other things that we gave as examples. And we see they're inconceivable and that they seem impossible even to us at times. But the fulfillment of that is often much different than what we would imagine. And so the way God gives us rest, the way that God gives us what we want, the way that God says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that is different than how we imagine. Because for me to imagine that the gates of hell would not prevail would be for us, the church, to be strong and to pummel the opposition into existence. The, the, the way for the church, to the, the gates of hell not to prevail against us would be for us to always have complete unity and harmony inside our church walls. But the reality is that doesn't happen. And so there, therefore, either I choose to believe that God is not keeping this promise, or I say that he is keeping it in a different way, or in a way that I'm not even imagining. And so we come back to the coming birth of Jesus, the promise, that, that first mention of the gospel of how the, the seed of, of, of Eve would crush the head and destroy the works of Satan and of the devil. We see here that, that the way we think that, that, that or the people at that time would have thought that that would have been fulfilled ended up being much different. I think everyone knew that a Messiah would have to be born. But they didn't know that he'd be called the Messiah when he was a baby. And that he would be presented to the world as a Messiah when he was crying to be fed by his mother. You see, the way that God fulfills things is often much different. And waiting is almost always part of the recipe. And it's difficult for us because we want things done now. We're an instant gratification society. I think I've said this before, we, we're a society that taps our foot in front of the microwave, okay? The microwave isn't fast enough to heat it up. We need things now, right away. Waiting is very difficult for us. One thing I've experienced in my Christian life is that waiting is almost always 
part of God's plan for us. He answers it much differently. Often God, He he fulfills what we need and what we want in a way that we never would have imagined or we would never have agreed to. Anuk once said, this was obviously years before she met me, that she could never marry someone four years younger than her. And here she is living the dream. God's plans are often much different than what is planned. And the final observation, what we can learn this morning is this. God's fulfillment of His promises is always much better than what we would have imagined or planned. God's plan is always best. The fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, that was an incarnation. That was a God-man. Could you conceive of that? That, that when Jesus said that He would send a Redeemer and that people would save, that they would have a redemption, it, it, it didn't mean working their way out of their debt because it would be impossible. It meant that God Himself would become man. The, the idea that then we would have an idea of God, of the nature of God through Jesus Christ, we have access to God, direct access to God because of this coming birth of Jesus, the Messiah. That is an answer, a fulfillment to the promise of Genesis 3.15 that is much greater than what could have been imagined. So when God makes a promise, He will fulfill it. But He will fulfill it maybe, even if the promise seems inconceivable or impossible, He will fulfill it. And it may seem to be in a different way than we ever would imagine, but it is always the best way. Jesus came fulfilling God's promise to crush the power of the devil. Now, think about the ramifications of that sentence there. It kind of makes you wonder why we still choose to sin. If the, if, if, if the purpose of Jesus' coming was to crush the power of the devil, then why do we still sin? You see, the way He answers prayer, or answers His promises, is always best even if we can't see it. You know, looking back, I mentioned, just a second ago, I mentioned about praying for children. And my wife and I have been very transparent about that. That that was a trial. That was a struggle for many years. You know, looking back on that, there were moments, I can remember going through that, of, of being very disappointed. We had several adoption attempts that did not work out. We lost quite a bit of money in one. And I remember just being very, very frustrated. Waiting and waiting. But you know, looking back on that, looking back on that time in my life, you know what I realized? And this is just true of me. So if you're in a similar situation, I'm not saying this is true of you, but it was true of me at that time, is that I was not ready at all to have children. I I needed to learn grace and mercy. And I needed to start working on killing a very specific sin in my life. That if I would have had children in my life at that moment, I I know for sure it would have been not a good thing. Because I, I, I just wasn't ready. I thought I was. 
Other people told me I was. But looking back, knowing what I know now, this is again just me. I know that God was merciful to me and probably to my children to make me wait. God knows best. I remember we were considering at one time, uh, before uh, a few years ago, of relocating to another state out west to potentially be the, the, the pastor of that church, praying about that. And we didn't know if that's what God would want it or not, but both Anook and I felt this and at the kind of towards the, the end of considering that, no, we're just going to wait. And then it was a few months later that I became introduced to the church here. At the time, I was wondering, what do you have from God? What do you have? How grateful. You see, we look back and we can see that God's fulfillment of his promises are always best. And here, when Jesus was promised to be born, this coming birth, it was a fulfillment of a promise that was in the best possible way. There is no better solution, even though the people at the time wanted a ruler to, to politically rule and bring that type of peace. God says, no, that's not exactly what I'm planning because I have a better plan for the coming birth of Jesus. Shows that his promises are always best. And finally, I would say this that Jesus or God's fulfillments, they're designed to increase our faith, hope, and love. You see, this is the reason why we wait. Our faith, our hope, and our love cannot increase unless they are stretched and tested. How could you know if your faith is more mature today than a year ago if it is not tested? How can you know if your faith is maturing if you're not constantly being called to trust on God, even if you don't see it? How can you know that you are believing that His commands are truly good for us if we're not waiting sometimes? You see, these things, the fulfillment of promises to us about I will never leave you or forsake you, how do we know that our faith is growing if, if we're never tested or stretched in that place where we wonder, God, are you there? And then He always says, yes, I'm right here. Now, it may take some time for you to understand that, but our faith has to be tested. How do you know that if your hope is more sure or more confident today if it is not stretched? The events of the world shake us. Do we despair over politics, sports, or other things? How do we know if our hope is sure and confident if we're not dealing with things that are constantly testing that. You see, God knows that and He lovingly gives us enough to test and stretch us and to prove us and to grow us. That's the reason why sometimes we have to wait. It's the reason why sometimes the promises seem inconceivable or even impossible to us. How do we know if our love is more pure today if it is not put to the test? Do you love God even when He says no to what you want? Do you love your neighbor, your coworkers, your supervisors when they're just flat out annoying and they make your life miserable? Do you love your enemy? Do you love your husband, your wife? When, when you look and say, man, this is not the husband I married 15 years ago. This is not the wife I married. Of course not. We're all changing. And we do things that are annoying to each other at times. But how do we know that we're true, that our love is more pure if it's not being put to the test? Now, don't take that as license to say, I'm going to make sure your love is pure. I'm going to annoy the snot out of you, okay? That's not the point here. But the point is that our love is often tested. What about your children? 
How do you know that you love your children if they always do exactly what you say the first time? You see, God allows things into our lives not to make our lives miserable. God fulfills his promises in different ways than what we would imagine because it's so for our good so that we can be maturing. Our faith, our hope, our love can increase. And so here's what I'd like us to do today to conclude the sermon. A little bit different. What I'd like us to do is, knowing that the fulfillment of God's promises that in, in the reason why sometimes they're inconceivable and sometimes they seem impossible and they're different and the fulfillment is different, but it's always best for us. Here's what I'd like us to do. What I'd like us to do is just, in groups of two, pray for those. those I put on the screen things to pray for here. Pray that God, pray that, first of all, we thank God that he is trustworthy and always knows what is best. And then pray for faith, hope, and love to increase in your life. So you pray Two groups of two. Now, if there's an odd person, you can be in groups of three. I won't be legalistic about it, but try to be in groups of two. Pray real quick about that, and then in about 30, 40 seconds, I'll close us in prayer. Musicians, you can come up, and then we'll close by singing the first place. So, groups of two, pray for these two things right now, please. Father, I do pray that our faith, hope, and love would increase. Father, I do pray that we would trust you and the promises that you make to us, and we're thankful and the promise of your coming birth that you showed us that while things can be inconceivable or even impossible and that you would answer in a different way, that you always have what is best for us. I pray that we would not doubt that. I pray as we anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ, that, that we would live in preparation and worship you through believing your promises and living in obedience to your commands. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let's stand together.